But it's been 10 years. It's been 10 years. And I hope people never forget what happened in, in Maragan. And as a journalist and having most of my career having covered it, I don't think I'll ever forget what happened in Maragan. Welcome to the One World Media Podcast. Welcome to the One World Media Podcast, Behind the Stories. I'm your host, Aisha, from One World Media. For 35 years, the One World Media Awards have celebrated the world's best journalism. We're celebrating this milestone by launching this podcast to interview some of our past winners and friends who remind us why stories and storytellers are important. At One World Media, we believe that stories shape our world. It matters how they're told. We support journalists and filmmakers across the Global South to tell underreported stories that inform and connect us all. In this limited series podcast, we'll travel to the Middle East, the African continent and Mexico to hear from our guests about how they got to where they are now and the experiences along the way that have shaped them as journalists and people. We'll hear from these senior journalists about how the media industry has changed, what's gotten better since they started working, what still needs to improve, and changes they're hopeful to see. Today we're speaking to Atandiwe Saba, Deputy Editor of the Mail and Guardian in South Africa, and Nokotula Maniati, Deputy Multimedia Editor at News24, also in South Africa. Atandiwe will be speaking about the documentary she produced for the 10-year anniversary of the Marikana Massacre, which took place in August of 2012. This massacre was the killing of 34 miners by the South African Police Service during a six-week strike at the Lonmin Platinum Mine at Marikana in South Africa's northwest province. It involved using lethal force against civilians. Nokuthula will be talking about the investigative podcast she produced, Exodus, Uncovering a Cult in KwaZulu-Natal, which won the One World Media Podcast and Radio Award in 2021. The award was shared with two colleagues. The podcast is a four-part series about a 50-year-old Christian mission in which former members of the congregation have come forward with testimonies of gross violations of human rights accusing the mission of covering up sexual abuse and money laundering spanning four decades. Atandiwe, let's start with you. You've said how this story affected you deeply. Would you tell us a little bit about it, please? What happened in um, Marigana back in 2012 was a kind of standout moment for South Africa and I think the world as well. Um, I watched it, I was actually still at Media 24 at that time and I was in Cape Town and I watched it on TV like most people did. But I think seeing those kinds of images um, in a post-democratic kind of dispensation was extremely jarring for everyone. Um, but then getting to cover it over the past decade in all its different guises has kind of fortified my understanding of journalism and how to kind of continue covering quite an important story, but also looking at the many different angles. And I think um, in the past year, last year, when we produced the documentary, I think in my mind that was the culmination of a decade's work, but also going back to seeing what happened afterwards. What were, what happened to the families after 10 years? What happened to the children? What happened to the widows? 
what happened in Marikana, I think a lot of the world understands and sees what happened. But I think people kind of forgot what happens afterwards when everything has kind of died down and there's no more talk about it. Um, where are those families? Where are those children? Where are those widows? And for me, it, it still remains quite a sore point um, in, our, in our history as South Africa, but also just like in my own, um, in my own career, in journalism as well, that, that 10 years has been marked by all these different stories in Marikan. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I also just want to welcome both of you to the podcast and say thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nakatula, before we jump into questions, what would you like to say about how the story has affected you, the one that you've chosen today to speak about? So uh, Exodus affected me on many levels and there were lots of lessons. I think what stands out from that project or what really made an imprint in my heart was just the amount of grit, the courage and the vulnerability that our whistleblowers displayed in kind of speaking up. It's an incredibly hard thing to do to speak up against a 50-year-old institution that makes multi-million rand profits and has strong political ties, not just here in South Africa, but abroad. And to decide that at any cost, I will speak up because what's been happening behind the walls of the mission station just doesn't seem right. And it made me think about so many times where I've sat in my life and became very defeated and like, I don't have the power, you know, this, this requires some financial support, this requires a lot of people. And just to see, I think in the beginning, we had seven affidavits from people who had lived in the mission at different points in their lives. Um, and how powerful just those seven voices became the foundation of our reporting. And through those seven testimonials, more people came forward. And they were the, then there were broader conversations that slowly moved out of the small community of Kwasizabandu, which is in KwaZulu-Natal. And we heard testimonials from people in Gauteng. We heard testimonials from people in the Western Cape. We had people come, for, come forward who are now living in Canada, in the United States in Europe. So I think that was kind of the, the biggest impact that I had that, you know, it just takes one person. I think we also saw that with the Me Too movement abroad, um, is that it was just a few women who said, you know what, I will speak up. And then it just created this domino effect of more people coming forward. And not just in the film and television industry, but in other industries as well. And through those little voices, collectively, it became a community of people who were strong enough to kind of hold those in power to account. Absolutely. I think it's useful for our listeners to hear that uh, South Africa guarantees press freedom and it has a well-established culture of investigative journalism. Journalists are rarely arrested in South Africa, but police violence against journalists and state security agency surveillance of investigative reporters is a concern. South Africa currently ranks mm. 25 out of 180 countries on the Press Freedom Index by Reporters Without Borders. So I'll put this question to both of you, um, and uh, maybe Atandiwe, you can go first. What stands out in your memory about reporting the story? Reporting Marikana, I've there's different aspects because having started firstly from just going to 
visit the families, um, the families of the the people who had been murdered in Maragana, that had a different aspect, that asked for a different aspect of me as a journalist. I'd asked for the aspect of being uh, compassionate. It asked for the aspect of being, of understanding that it's, it's, it's not people who you would ordinarily meet. Um, these were widows from far-flung areas um, across southern Africa, um, which would include a lot of people from the Eastern Cape, which is one of the provinces in South Africa, but also going all the way up to Lesotho. So that required a different sense of me. But then when you continue the uh, continued reporting on the different aspects, then we moved into um, what was actually happening in Marigana, in Rustenburg, for the strike to have happened. And then you had to begin investigating the... Um, the nuances of a mining company and mining industry that was so close to politics, so close to how we got kind of our democracy and the roles that um, the mining industry and and labor played in that in that guise. So that also required the the more investigative part of of the journalism. And I'm I'm talking through the various uh, phases of my coverage of this. So. Then we also then had the commission, so we had to um, cover the commission over the about two or so years, um, where we were unpacking. The commission was trying to understand what led to the massacre and what happened after the massacre as well, because um, it wasn't just simply that uh, there was the shooting on the sixteenth. There were the incidents, 16th of August, there were the incidents prior to that, and there were incidents after that. Um, and we had to understand that and also report it. So it wasn't simply we, we would sit in a commission and just write what was happening. We had to explain to the country. Uh, we had to explain to the world what was coming out there, and it was extremely painful. Um, and we also had to explain what was happening with the forensics um, so that takes a different kind of um, understanding of, 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 of what we do um, as journalists. And of course, I've continued to go back to Marika and I've continued to keep in contact with the families. But you do find that there are hindrances um, along the way when you are trying to speak to families, when you are trying to be at a at a march or a gathering um, in those volatile areas where the police will um, stop journalists from filming or um, the, 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 the leaders of some of the, the unions will say things on, uh, on a stage, including that these journalists who are here mm. um, shouldn't be here and that they report lies because now we also had to shine the focus on the unions as well. Um, that insidious relationship between the unions, government, what happened with the police, we had to shine a light on all of that. But there, there was evident pushback when we tried to do that. And I think several journalists also uh, had similar, similar stories. But once you have spoken to the people who, get le who got left behind, the widows, the children, you understood the situations that they were in. And I think this kind of speaks to what Noctula was talking about, about that courage to actually speak out about this. Five, I think I went to speak to the first widow maybe six, seven days after um, 
husband was 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 murdered there in Rustenburg and she had a 12 day old baby mm. and the courage for her to sit in her unfinished home because they were still building there the courage for her to sit there and to talk to me about the anguish the pain the how she doesn't understand how this could have happened what is she going to do now because uh, the husband was the breadwinner once I covered that part and I listened to several of these stories, I think I spoke to about 20, about 20, tw no, about, yeah, around close to 20 families um, on, 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 this, on the first leg just after the massacre. But once I had that, I kept on going back to that. Every time um, there was some kind of pushback in terms of whether it's the police who don't want to talk about what they had done there, uh, the massacre itself, or you are dealing with pushback from the unions, or you're dealing with uh, minds that won't respond to questions. You go back to understanding why you started covering the story in the first place. And the documentary does um, delve a bit into not just where these people are, but what are their circumstances now. Mm. And there is a lot of kind of pushback, and people don't really understand why we're still talking to 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 these widows and, and why the situation hasn't changed in a lot of mining companies and how they treat uh, the labor from all over, mostly from mostly uh, rural Southern Africa. So it's about trying knowing why you're covering the story, no matter what kind of pushback there is and matter, no matter what kind of difficulty there is, you know why. And I think with Tuli as well, that kind of would probably come through in terms of like what were the, even with what you're saying, Aisha, what were those difficulties and how you kind of moved on and, and ensured that you continued investigating um, your piece? So mine was a bit interesting, very different from you. Um fun bit when well it's not a fun bit but when the marikana massacre happened we were in the newsroom at the same time um i was a junior 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 reporter ati was a bit senior than me and what i remember you were traveling a lot on your own right granted you travel with a photographer from the newsroom but a lot of the writing work a lot of um kind of the interviewing and building relationships in a way felt from you yes you were in a team but everybody was deployed in different areas with mine and specifically with Exodus, I had the comfort of working with the team closely. So we were about a team of, of six and it made, it made a challenging situation a bit easier because we could debrief with each other. Because as soon as you go into somebody's home, they kind of become part of you and they kind of seep into yes, your memory. Definitely. You know, and it stays with you. And it's also so hard to relay this to family and friends or even colleagues that are not in that same situation about like, this is what it feels like. So I think with this project, or although it was very heavy, it dealt with abuse, it dealt with sexual abuse mm -hmm. as well. We had people crying, you know, people sharing some of their most painful experiences. Um, the fuel to keep on going was made easier to recharge because of my of the team members that we had, people that we could brainstorm with, somebody who could encourage you as well, mm -hmm. somebody who can say, okay, you know, today you don't seem like you can do the interview, but it's fine because we've met um, the whistleblower, so I can take over this section of that and you can take a breather, right? And I completely empathize with you because you've built those relationships with 20-odd families and you kind of don't have reprieve. You have to 
be the point person in that way. So I think in this project, that's where I learned the power of collaboration and and team members. I was I've been able to appreciate it in ways that I. I didn't. I think often in journalism you see collaboration as, hey, do you have so and so's number? Do yeah. you have a source's number? <laughs> yeah. And also, also although, and it, it's it's such a weird thing because journalism is kind of this two-edged sword. We do it for the greater good of people, and you want your your work to impact as many people as possible. But then you become so precious with mm. your stuff, right? So it's kind of this individual, but group but individual mm. stuff. And and I think we are precious not because we're selfish, but we we care very much about the work that we do, right? Um, and you don't want somebody else to mess it up because you've got this vision and you know how you can do stuff really well. But I think then this project showed me or taught me, right, because you can know stuff, but until you experience it, it, it seldom doesn't stick as well. You know, it's like that experience kind of leaves an imprint where I was like, you know what, you can cover more ground um, and it refuels you to work with the broader team, people that can, and also people that can help you with your blind spots as well, right? Um, particularly stories are very heavy and people are sharing some very intimate details and at our core we are reporters right so you might you may believe the person who's a whistleblower but your responsibility is to probe and interrogate to make sure that what is said is true because your reporting will also be probed and interrogated you want to do due diligence and it's it's nice to have uh, team members who are like you need to press this point a bit more. You need to investigate a bit more. Yes, you've been in this person's home. Yes, they've opened up and they've been vulnerable. But it doesn't take away that you are not uh, sympathetic or that you you don't care. But you need to ask these questions. You need to get this confirmation. Corroboration. Yes, you need to corroborate. The corroboration yes, you need to think, their think story so, so much. much. And, it, and it feels for the person receiving this kind of barrage of questions as if you are doubting them, right? And I can imagine it's like I've we spent three hours together and I've told you this and I've cried and I've been so vulnerable. And then you're going to ask me like, oh, can I have that person's number because you said they know? I just want to check whether you. Uh, are actually being truthful, and and those things are, are are so tricky to kind of balance and and just take care of people and people because they don't know our industry and they don't know how we work. You know, it can easily have somebody close off and not want to share more, and that's and that's a that's a heavy burden mm. to kind of of carry as well. And I don't know if you had the same thing, Ati, because even for you now, you've been on it with these families for ten years. How you create a balance between not being kind of the go-to for every problem that comes up. You're not a trained therapist. I know you're an empathetic person and you've got a high EQ and I've come to you with little things. I'm like, Artie, but how do you then like set the the boundary? Because you don't want people to feel abandoned because we spend so much time um, with our whistleblowers, um, with people who share in their lives with us. Mm. And at some point you also have to draw the line and say, you would love, actually, I was um, quite, was it last year or early this year? My gosh, everything moves so quickly. Well, you with COVID, <laughs> years, years have become, what are years with COVID? What are years? What are years with COVID? You'd love, actually, I was uh, at one of the widow's uh, 40th birthdays. She invited me. Oh, and that's lovely. I drove all the way to Marigan. It's like an hour and a half from Johannesburg. Um to go to her 40th birthday. And I think those those relationships will continue. But I think we've, over the years, we've been able to to draw the boundaries. Um, I still call them just to find out what's mm. happening there. And um, 
um, what's happening there and and if they have any issues there. And I think a couple of years ago, I'd still kind of check in when their children, because the mine did take uh, their children to put them into private schools. So mm. I would check, are the kids okay? What's happening there? Um, are there any issues around that? So... But it does take time. It does take time to be able. And there's other people, actually, that I've grown to know and to work with on other completely different projects who are from that area as well. Mm. So as just a journalist, you have a source book that is so, so rich. But I think they also kind of get that I can't be on top of everything that happens. Some people get mad because I, I didn't go to Rustenburg to cover the, the court case that's happening. Exactly. But I also have to explain that this, this is how things go. A question I wanted to pose back to you, Noctula, was around media freedom and covering this kind of um, investigative reporting. Mm. Were there any difficulties from the church itself or the political landscape um, when you were trying to get information? Because it's not only just based on here the whistleblowers and this is what they're saying as you were talking about corroboration. How does that happen in such a close-knit community of a church and then add COVID so that is one thing that that we haven't mentioned we got the tip at the end of 2019 a whistleblower reached out to our editor-in-chief uh, we had the first meeting with her at the top of 2020 before we even knew what COVID was or what COVID could be and naively at that time, we thought, you know, we could easily go into the mission station. So part of the mission is that you do gain access to it. Um, it's not like a closed off situation. They bring in visitors. They make a quelle, the water that you're carrying today, FYR. Okay. Uh, FYR. From the mission. Okay. Uh, FYR. <laughs> uh, when I saw you carrying that water, I said, wow, were you really reading my content? Because, um, yeah, but, you know, they make that water and they have a supermarket. Uh, so people do come in there, they do bring in, in visitors, so it's not a completely closed off. There's certain segments of the mission station that they don't let people in because people live there as well, like lots of the staff live there. So we thought we'd get access and kind of like maybe filming some stuff, maybe we could get in and request an interview. So we're very upfront with stuff. We don't just kind of try and ambush and... Um, bamboozle people right you and, and that's part of the practice to say this is the investigation we're working on we've received word would you like to give a right of response and we give you more than enough time with covid it made it particularly as a visual and an audio story it made it a, a little bit more difficult to kind of get in we actually couldn't i think it was june 2020 a colleague and, and i shante we we went down because at that time the restrictions were lifted so as as what we were called essential workers we were now to travel across the borders so we drove down we went to the gate we spoke to the securities we asked if we could come in they didn't let us in they only let us in there so there's a shop that's open to the public in the community so they said we could use the shop but we couldn't go further on that that was a very valid uh, point they said well because of the health risk and this is an enclosed community we won't let you in. So we were able to still see and we asked the security guard, is it still functioning? You know, what's going on? And they um, gave us insight. But we did get pushback in a sense of the, the right of response. I won't say pushback, but as expected, the, the, the responses were very vague. Of course, uh, of course. Uh, this is not true. And also because of the whistleblowers being former members, it was kind of, these are disgruntled exes. 
you know, they are, you know, everybody always says that you're a disgruntled ex, you're upset because you didn't get your way. So it, it, they, they kind of played it up in that way. However, as more evidence started coming forward and as we were releasing more documents and more of the, 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 the podcast episode kind of showed the validity of our reporting, then the statements became, became a bit more textured, right? And then what really kicked them was because they have a lot of business dealing, so they produce the water, but they also grow produce, which is sold in the major supermarkets, so Woolworths, Pick and Pay. So when we were also now sending questions to Woolworths, say, are you aware that this institution that you're doing business with um, is now standing accused of these allegations? What do you have to say? Then they started then drawing back and say, okay, we're going to halt business operations and we're also going to look into it because we are not, this is not a brand alignment. So then that's where like the statements became longer and we will take you to court and we will fight for our innocence. But beyond that, we didn't feel heavy pushback that we wouldn't anticipate when you are putting somebody's feet to the fires mm -hmm. as well. And I think because it's it's very different because the work that you were doing also involves like statesmen, you know, it involves government officials, it involves police. It involves a multinational. multinational. You know, it involves a multinational. So the amount of pushback that you would have received is very different because this in, in, in theory is a private company that has links to some political figures, but it's it's a it's a it's a it's a private family business situation, you know. Um, so we didn't. I don't think anybody on on our reporting team felt harm or that you know maybe somebody might be spying on you. We were very cautious. <laughs> you know, we were very cautious. We didn't feel like okay, maybe the state security people are going to come after us and stuff. But we were aware that they could be dangerous and push back. But I think most. In, the investigative journalists that feel it the most or really feel that harm is if you're now hitting, you know, public entity, government officials, you know, the police and stuff like that. Mm. You feel it a bit more heavier no, than, definitely. than us. You know? Definitely, definitely. Um, one of the things I wanted to kind of understand is in the context of this particular story of that you guys did, I know it was in 2021, yes. 2020 published end of yeah we started the top of 2020 we published October of 2020 so it was really in the thick of the pandemic yeah what has changed since then um, <sighs> has anything in that specific space. sector in that specific space changed yes and no so as soon as like our um, our investigation went live we had a special tip of box or inbox um, that we all had access to. And that thing was pinging like nobody's business, which was quite encouraging because uh, a lot of people, a lot of people were corroborating what was said, and it was independent people who were not close or had any relations with our whistleblowers. So that kind of gave us a sigh of relief, and then we were able to do rolling reporting on it outside of the core whistleblowers that we had. Uh, the minister of police, Begitele. Uh, said they'd open case and they they made a call out to people in the community um, and nationwide who had similar stories of had any experience of, of abuse at the hands of the mission's leaders to please come forward, please file your cases and that they would investigate that. And so as a result of the new testimonies that we received, 
um, South Africa's Commission for the Promotion and Protection of the Rights of Cultural, Religious and Linguistic Communities, also known as the CRL, CRL Rights Commission, launched a probe. Uh, this was about two years ago. Um, more people, so it was kind of like an open call and people spoke publicly, people shared their testimonies um, on a public platform. They collected all this information. We understand that the report is ready, but right now there's a delay. And now there has been pressure, particularly from the, the newer whistleblowers who are putting pressure on the CRL Commission to please release the results of this because now they have sit, been sitting in, on it um, for a while. We understood, what my understanding was that for a while, uh, Walmart uh, owned MassMart, owned a macro game and food lovers market as well as a spa at the time, they halted production with the mission in terms of, or business with the mission in terms of the, the produce that they get from them. Um, but beyond that, it hasn't been clear if this is like a long-standing or long-term kind of resolution towards it. But in short, the mission is still operating. Um, the water is still being sold um, at various places. I see it every day. Actually, I, I actually saw it on Macro. So actually, Macro is still selling the water. So periodically, when, when we published, yes, things happened. And then now it's seeming like it's back to business on the business end. Yeah. You know? Atandiwe, do you have any um, closing comments? I think I guess on my side with the Marikana story, it I don't think it will ever really stop being an important story, uh, especially with mining in South Africa and as I said, the insidious relationship uh, between state uh, mining houses, unions, uh, and mostly it's around uh, workers' rights and how workers are treated, uh, because most of the workers who come to the mines are from very far far flung out areas um and marigana was just is just a microcosm of what mm. the reality is um in many many small mining towns and especially when mining right now is looking at its sunset years um there's a lot of these communities that are just going to be left decimated whether it's not it's even if it's not a massacre on the level that we saw um, over 10 years ago, we can see these these families having been torn apart, um, fathers having to work hundreds of kilometers away from home, uh, children growing up uh, up without them, and, and yet not being left with much um, after all those years. Um, and the Marigana, as I said, just a microcosm of all of this. There's been a little bit of progress in terms of how police in South Africa, how they act in 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 protest situations, but um, there's a there's there's several reports that have been gathering dust and legislative um, legislative work gathering dust and the department um, on the department of uh, police's um, table, the minister's table, um, but the fact that we could begin to talk about why police were carrying live ammunition at a protest um, is some progress. But it's been 10 years. It's been 10 years. And I hope people never forget what happened in, in Maragan. And as a journalist and having most of my career having covered it, I don't think I'll ever forget what happened in Maragan. 
Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please listen to the other episodes of this podcast on Yemen and Mexico and the wider region. If you like this podcast, please rate or review us. Tell your friends about it and share it on social media. Thanks for your support and thank you for joining us. This episode was recorded in London at the Edit Store, part of ClearCut Group. Thanks to our executive producer and host, Aisha, audio editor, Lawrence Westercott, executive producer, Will Jamieson, and producer, Charlie Evans-Flagg.